this week on the Back Table Podcast. So there's been a, a lot of big changes. So in 2021, they completely revamped outpatient EM coding. So for new office patients or established patients, and the significant changes were, you know, used to be you had history, physical exam, and medical decision-making. And then you had time-based billing, but the time-based billing had to be face-to-face. There were lots of rules to it. So they AMA came in and they completely revamped and sort of liberalized the billing and coding for those encounters. And 2023, those same rules will apply for inpatient work. So from an outpatient side, I do a lot of time-based billing and it's very easy to hit the time requirements because now the time can be face-to-face or non-face-to-face. It can be before, after, or during the day of the visit. And so for most IR patients, we tend to spend a lot of time with them. So from an outpatient side, I really have switched to more time-based billing. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on Backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Backtable listeners, we invite you to visit the lab at Reflow during ISET, that's I-S-E-T, for a hands-on demonstration of our new and upcoming devices. It's a great opportunity to try out the Wingman Crossing Catheter with its unique extended bevel tip. The Specs LP, the low-profile version of the Specs Shapeable Support Catheter, and the new line of core catheters for use in challenging PCI procedures. It's the pulse of medical ingenuity at work. See it for yourself at ICIT or visit us online at reflowmedical.com. And now back to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Ali Behetti, coming to you from Tacoma, Washington. And our guest today is Dr. Ryan Trojan, interventional radiologist based in Oklahoma City. Ryan, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. So your first podcast about ENM Part 1 was extremely popular. I reference it frequently when I'm going through things. Um, I also reference your YouTube videos and the chart that you made. And when I was listening to it, um, I kind of felt like there's just something more there that we could talk about. And I felt like there are probably a lot of other people in my shoes. So ENM Part 1 was recorded over a year ago. Have there been any developments in your practice since then? In my own practice, uh, there have. So we are a fairly large practice. We have six to seven interventionalists and four to five PAs, but we did not have a clinical nurse practitioner. Mm. So we onboarded one last year, and that's been huge in trying to capture all the ENM revenue that's there on the inpatient side because there's a, a body that's available to go see all the patients that need to be seen and do, do the follow-up work. I see. I think ideally we would have two nurse practitioners for the inpatient practice, but that's something we're working on moving forward. I think in the last in the last episode, you mentioned that uh, at that time, you the doctors were seeing all the patients, seeing all the consults, doing all of the ENM. So do you still have, do you guys still go and see those consults? I typically will. Uh, I see all my own patients and all my own follow-ups, but we have some partners that are a little older and aren't as <laughs> in tune to go see all their follow-up patients. No way. <laughs> so it's it's been really phenomenal to have somebody who could follow their patients. Okay. And then typically the, the nurse practitioner will go around on those patients together, but it makes my life a lot easier yeah. if she's already done a lot of the groundwork. Oh, awesome. Okay. So um, I'm sure that was instrumental in convincing your older partners that ENM was worth it. And it was one of the things that we noticed where a lot of our hospitalists were like, well, how come this cholecystostomy <laughs> tube gets clinical follow-up in the hospital and this one doesn't. And I was like, well, we don't have a good reason except for 
you know, differences amongst providers in the group. So by bringing in that mid-level, we solved that problem. That's awesome. That's awesome. And then in your last podcast episode, you mentioned that you guys were starting a clinic, but it was a little bit derailed because of COVID. Any progress on that front? No. So I, <laughs> I was at a lecture at the hospital last week, and they said 70% of hospitals in the past three months have lost money. So our hospital systems in that category. So we are trying to find all different avenues to cut revenue. So, sure. you know, yeah. I think on the inpatient side, the E&M stuff is very easy because it's zero input financially, but still trying mm -hmm. to find clinic space, you know, and get a medical assistant and get a nurse all costs money. So to answer the question, no, we don't have that clinic space and we're still fighting, you know, to get the funding to do that. But I think in the next sure. six to 12 months, it's probably going to be a no. We do have a clinic at the hospital. So I have a clinic. Mm -hmm. I can use my nurses to get vitals and I see my clinical patients throughout the day, but it's not a deal where you know, every Thursday afternoon, I'm in a clinic separate from where, you know, separate from the hospital itself, which is kind of what we want. We okay. want a clinic that people can drive up to. They can walk in, walk mm -hmm. out easily. And right now, that's not what we have. So at that current clinic that you have where you have a nurse, nursing staff and stuff, um, is that where you see kind of pre-procedure outpatients? Like if you're doing like a elective UFE or something? So yes, we will see them, but we'll see them, you know, weeks in advance of the procedure. So mm -hmm. You know, it's a it's a uh, moving target on what we see in consultation prior to the procedure. But right now we see all UVs, anything oncological, whether it be ablations, taste, we see uh, and we'll also see them in follow up. And for biopsies, if we have a patient that wants to see us in consultation before, we will see them. Uh, we see all TIPS patients. And then again, everything else like fistula work, you know vascular access and those things we typically do not see pre-procedure i know there are some hospital systems that just see everybody you know they see all the ports and all the and i think that's wow yeah there's pros and cons to that setup but we're sort of somewhere in sure. the middle yeah that's that's how my practice is too like we see bigger stuff beforehand um in consults but uh, anything um a lot of the stuff that our pas do we just uh you know see day of okay so You've learned probably a lot over the past year about E&M that you've learned since the last episode. So how has your documentation or management been refined? So there's been a, a lot of big changes. So in 2021, they completely revamped outpatient E&M coding. So for new office patients or established patients, and the significant changes were, you know, used to be at history, physical exam, and medical decision-making. And then you had time-based billing, but the time-based billing had to be face-to-face. -face. There were lots of rules to it. So they, AMA came in and they completely revamped and sort of liberalized the billing and coding for those encounters. And 2023, those same rules will apply for inpatient work. So from, so from an outpatient side, I do a lot of time-based billing on my outpatient consults mm -hmm. just because if I see somebody that's coming in for a renal mass... I'll probably spend 40 minutes with them talking and it's very easy to hit the, the time requirements because now the time can be face-to-face -face or non-face-to-face. -face. It can be before, after, or during the day of the visit. And so you really can, for most IR patients, we tend to spend a lot of time with them. Um, we're not family practice providers. A lot of our patients have a lot of medical complex cases. They've got a lot of baggage to unpack. And so it just takes time to you know do the consults and those things. So 
from an outpatient side, I really have switched to more time-based billing. I see. As opposed to, you know, component-based billing. Yeah, it's it just it seems a little uh, more straightforward and a little easier, especially now that you can include all of that stuff in the time. As I understand it, you can also um, include discussions with the referring provider as part of that time-based billing too, correct? Yes. So from my standpoint, you know, if we look at it from a inpatient side, from the second somebody calls you, you know, if you're there on a weekend, mm-hmm. like let's say I'm working up a stroke, there are a lot of strokes that, you know, I spend a lot of time on on the weekends and all that time can yeah. now count. So previously it could not. Awesome. Awesome. So that, t- that starts to take effect in January, 2023. Correct. And they just released the the stuff last month on it. Um, and there are a lot of other changes, but I think from an IR perspective, that's the key change. And we, I think everybody knew this was headed in that direction. Uh, we're uh-huh. just glad it's, it's there. So. Okay. Yeah. So I think you pretty much answered that next question I had about uh, changes coming in 2023. So are you still going to go through all of that medical decision-making stuff and all the things that we talked about during our last, the last podcast for your impatience, or do you think you're going to just make the switch over to time-based early on? I think I want to try. Even on the medical decision-making side, they've made that fairly easy. So they've liberalized uh-huh. those rules to where either, I think what people have to focus on for IR is for outpatient, inpatient. Most of our medical decision-making is either going to be moderate complexity or high complexity based on, at least Mm -hmm. from my patient population. And so I think that it's going to be very easy to time-based bill and to do component-based billing based on medical decision-making. So I think for your run-of-the-mill person who's never billed, it is going to be a whole lot easier to step into this and document what's needed in order to get, you know, your notes covered. And again, I think that with IR patients, all of our patients are complex. Most are complex. Absolutely. We're not family practice yeah. providers. We're not doing outpatient elective plastic surgery. A lot of people have a lot of medical comorbidities. So that actually brings us to another point. So um, Michael Cummings shared this uh, in a group that we have that he basically got a letter from BCBS that showed where he was coding his visits versus where the average provider was coding their visits. And that letter was implying that he was overcoding his visits. So I'd love to talk to you about reasonable levels of service for various consults. So let's start with like like stuff that you see in your outpatient clinic. Start to tell me the kind of things that fall under the um, the lowest code. So I typically bill, I mean, everything is nine nine. 204, 205. And the times where I'll bill 205, a lot of time has to do with time. So for 205, it kicks in at 60 minutes. And there are some patients that I spend 60 minutes with trying to go over all their medical stuff. So that's that, those are the two spots where I bill everything. So I'd be curious to know what level he was billing at that prompted them to send the letter. I've never had a, from my own experience, I've never been contacted by an insurance company. I think it's one of those deals where as long as you document it appropriately and you're doing the work, yeah, they can't they right. can't have a problem with it. In my clinic, we see a lot of follow ups after procedures. So, um, do you document those ones as a a level four or level five as well, or do you document those as a three? Usually, qualif- mine qualify for a level four. Um, mm-hmm. I do a lot of oncology work, mainly like renal tumor ablations. So that's where I see a yeah. lot of my follow up. Uh, and okay. a lot of them have a lot going on. That's how they ended up coming oh, to me. Sure. So 
Uh, yeah, most are still in the moderate category. Very few are in the low category. If I was going to look at low category, that would be maybe like an infected port that I'm doing prolonged wound yeah. care on. That mm -hmm. would be something that would mm -hmm. fit in the low category. Got it. Got it. Okay. One thing I wanted to touch on, your practice is kind of special in that you're separate from the diagnostic radiologist, right? So you're an IR only group. Correct. Uh, that is hospital employed, correct? Yes. We got hired by the hospital. Our The private group is still in place at the hospital. But one of our mm -hmm. main reasons for leaving was we wanted to provide better patient care. Yeah. And you have to have an aggressive inpatient E&M service to where you see every single patient that you touch in the hospital. And on the same side, yeah. you've got to see them and follow up on the outpatient side. Okay. So in listening to your first podcast, um, I heard the part about global periods. I just like to go over that again, just for some clarification. And just because I think it's a really important part to understand IR, e &M. Just explain the idea of global periods again to me. So for global periods, you have zero day globals, 10 day globals, and 90 day globals. For IR, we pretty much just focus on the 10 day globals. There's the things that fall into the 10-day global are kyphoplasty, tunneled central venous access, cholecystostomy tube placement, gastric access, so if like a fresh GJ or fre fresh G-tube, and then any mm -hmm. sort of ablation. So anything okay. outside of that is a zero-day global. And the significance of that is, and it's very, very, very important, is that hospital day one, you can bill inpatient progress notes. And if you were to see them in clinic five days later, you can bill for that encounter. We are unique in that most specialties have 10 and 90 day globals. We do not. Mm -hmm. And one thing to highlight, for example, I think you had a question about phlebotomy. Oh, uh, phlebectomy. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I, um, I do that in my practice. So I, maybe you don't do it in yours, but, um, but yeah, I think I just saw that they changed it to a 10 day global also. Yeah. So for example, the phlebectomy codes, which I do not, I do not do. So, so looking <laughs> at those codes, this highlights exactly mm -hmm. what happened to IR the past 10 to 15 years. So everybody says IR is taken in the shorts, reimbursements in the tank. And what happened was, is they dropped payment for our code. So look at the phlebectomy code. They dropped payments. I believe those codes were 31 to 32% less in production than the year prior. But then they moved it from a 90-day global to a 10-day global. And if you look mm. at what they did with IR procedures, it was the exact same. You know, they make a, take a biliary drain placement, cut the pay 30, 35%, but then they drop it to a zero day global thinking, well, he functions just like a urologist. And if we do that, if you do that to a urologist, he's going to follow the patient yeah. every day in the hospital and see him in clinic. And he's going to make up for that lost revenue with the NM. But again, the vast majority of IRs aren't capturing that revenue for Definitely. e &M work. Cause I think the most common thing I hear is it's not worth it. And I just don't think that's true. I don't think, I think in the landscape as it stands, we should try to capture every bit of revenue we can, you know, and not leave anything Absolutely, on the table. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's just one of the ways that IR can show that they're not a cost center really and that they're a producer for the hospital or for their group even. Okay. Well thanks for clarifying that. Um and so just one a couple more things. Uh are these only for uh inpatient services or for outpatient services too or and stuff in the OBL? So I do not work in the OBL space, but my interpretation is this uh, applies to everything that we do. So Got if it. you do, okay. if you put a port in an OBL and you see them, mm -hmm. you know, post-operative day three, you would not be able to bill for that as a, you know, that's gotcha. a 10-day global. I got it. Okay. All right. Perfect. 
I think you mentioned before, but cholecystostomy tube placement is on there, but biliary tube placement is not on there, correct? Correct. It makes no sense. It doesn't, it makes no sense. I think it's just, <laughs> I think they went in and they, they audit these codes and they try to come, they try to bundle everything. And then cholecystostomy uh-huh. tube is sort of like the bastard code. It just, it's just out on its own <laughs> and they'll just never come back and fix it. Cause it, it <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you stay over there. <laughs> and from an RVU standpoint, like I think it's falsely high compared to all the other biliary cases we do. What is it? I think it's like, let me, I can look it up. Let me look it up. I think it's like seven. <laughs> I'm curious. So cholecystostomy <laughs> tubes. So it's 4.7 work RVUs, but it's the exact same. So biliary drain placements, 5.38. So I feel like a lot of biliary drain placements are much more difficult than a cholecystostomy tube. Well, yeah. So, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. Um, I know what I'm doing tonight. I'm just kidding. I'm <laughs> not going to go place a bunch of coli tubes. Well, actually, I might. I'm on call. All right. Um, I'd love to get to some questions from the audience. Um, I pulled Twitter about about this podcast, and I wanted to kind of hear what other interventional radiologists had to ask you. I've been told that I can't be the ordering MD on a consult. I'm wondering if that's true, as I've seen vascular surgery use the lab as the ordering doctor. For example, I'll get a call about from GI about a bleed. I see the patient and say angio is warranted. I have been told that GI has to order the consult or procedure in the EMR, not me. Is that true? My understanding and the way that I practice is that I typically don't have an order in the system. So if GI calls me, yeah, I'll go see the patient. I put the note in and I'll say mm-hmm. referring provider is my GI specialist and he called me to come see the patient about X. And so I documented my note who my referrer is, why I'm being referred for the case. So for the inpatient consult codes, right now there's five, 99251 through 99255 in the... 2023 update, they're getting rid of 99251. And that sort of mirrors, there's, you know, four categories for medical decision-making. And so each of those categories will be tied to a a consult code. Mm -hmm. So as long as you document, again, the physician that requested the consult, why they wanted the consult and document the note appropriately, it should be okay. If I see a patient where it's pretty, I think that one of the caveats is who do I write a consult note on? Versus who do I write just an inpatient yes. hospital day one yes. note? Let's touch on that. And I th- I think that's a sort of up to everybody's interpretation. Okay. So about 50% of my consults, or if you consult me in the hospital, 50% of the time, I'll bill it as a consult note because I really talk to the patients. Like, for example, let's say cholecystostomy tube. I would bill that as a consult because I have to go over expectations, having the tube in. A lot of people freak out when they're like, oh, I'm going to have a tube for four to six weeks. I have to follow up with the surgeon to make sure the gallbladder comes out if it needs to. And a lot of those patients have a lot of uh, medical stuff going on to where it's just, I got to spend a lot of time talking to them about expectations. Sure. But if you were to call me for a non-septic, well, I take it back. I I typically just consult everybody. Oh, really? And then on the back, I don't know. I'm trying to think of situations on the inpatient side where I wouldn't make it a consult. And I can't think of any recently that I've done in the past six months. I guess for me, like if, if thoracic surgery consults me to put a chest tube in, I'll like, you know, see them write something about it, but I'm not, it's not really a consult because I'm not really like given the option to give the patient yes or no, you right. know, I'm not sure. And I think in those, know, something like that. So in cases where it's not a consult, like a chest tube, I just typically do it yeah. and just see them on the backside, but I won't typically see maybe that patient on the front side. 
Got it. Got it. Oh, yeah. That, I mean, that that kind of brings me to the next the next question. Should all procedures come as a result of a formal consult, or how do you triage what what things are minor, what things are major? I don't think there's like a hard and fast rule, but typically, like for example, a chest tube, I wouldn't see on on the front end. Um, I would just follow them on the back end, and then anything yeah, and do the hospital progress notes. Okay. Anybody who's going to have a drainage tube. Long term, I'll typically see that patient in consult just because I know I really want to work on them to set expectations. I think it, mm -hmm. it's on the flip side, if I'm the patient and I end up in the IR department and then somebody's telling me I'm going to have a tube for six months or three months, uh, I, I could see from the patient side where that would be, you know, cause a lot of anxiety and worry and all that stuff. But if they come down knowing exactly what you're going to do, I just think it's a better patient yeah. experience. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It also, it kind of solidifies our role as like real doctor. I don't hate saying this, but like real doctors, you know, like a surgeon wouldn't just operate on whoever showed up to his operating room, right? Like have to do this pre-procedure workup beforehand. And I think that's something that's lost in um, a lot of folks that maybe didn't train the way we trained. I think so. And I think the IRs that have been coming out the past five to 10 years are a lot more in tune with that aspect of it. And even the first six months I was in practice, everybody was like, why are you always up in the ICU rounding? It's like, I thought this is what we were supposed to do. So yeah. <laughs> well, um, sounds like you're, you've kind of faced a lot of similar challenges to me in terms of um, managing expectations with your older partners, perhaps, or uh, with, and not in your case, but in some cases, diagnostic radiology. So I know you hired the NP. Anything else you've kind of you've kind of done to get the older rads on board with the way that you do stuff now? So for the record, <laughs> the one older rad is not on board with rounding on patients, oh. and and we just had to cut our losses. So I round on all of his okay. patients. Oh, okay. And, and so when he's on vacation, they come to me because they already know me. I think the main thing is templates. Not necessarily like I don't have a template for every individual scenario, so I don't have a. On the inpatient side, I've got two or three templates. On the outpatient side, I have a UFI template, and that's just to speed things up. But I think having templates that you can share with people. So if we onboard a new provider or even a nurse practitioner, she has access to all of our templates. And so she doesn't have to reinvent the wheel as far as making a note that looks good. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and in, I mean, in Epic, it's so easy. You can pull in everything and it's 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 just a pretty easy EMR to use. Although I'm sure a lot of people would not agree with that. And I am shocked how many people don't know how to, the snipping tool. So yeah. I will, I will. <laughs> so two things I do that I like with Epic, I think Epic's phenomenal. I know people hate it, but I've had a lot worse. So I'll snip the pictures off packs. And then I also have mm -hmm. Epic on my iPhone. So if I drain like three yeah. liters of pus out of somebody, I'll snap a picture yeah. on my iPhone. It uploads their Epic chart. And then I put it in the post, yeah. post procedure note. And, and people just love it. The ID docs love it. Oh, man. You know. Yes. Yeah. No, I mean, nothing like a big bowl of pus to just like make somebody's day. Just think of like some hospitalist eating their lunch sandwich and like looking at that progress note. And I like to do, like, I like to stick something in there for reference, like a bottle cap or a mm -hmm. syringe so they can just know the volume. Definitely. Definitely. I wish I could do that on my EMR. There's like all this like weird... Um, software so I can't use snipping tool. I know it's that's a bummer in my mind, but I know it's really hindering my uh, my lifestyle. But I'll I'll text people, you know, pictures of stuff. I'll text referring providers gross pictures of clot I've taken out, all that stuff. You know, I don't know if they like it or if they just want to be like, lady, please stop sending me these. But 
but I'm going to keep doing it. <laughs> so, so in regards on that topic, in the new rules that come out in 2023, if you reach out to an external provider via text, that mm -hmm. counts as a qualification for one of the data points. Um, so it used oh, to be, I think okay. people thought you had to call, but now you can text uh -huh. or Skype or whatever you want to do and that counts. Oh, that's great. So, that's awesome. I think one thing I discounted starting my IR practice was I didn't realize how much I would be texting people. It's like all day. Oh, for sure. It's, uh, it's good and bad, right? That they always have your number. Yeah. <laughs> Any other tips and tricks from the AMA updates that you'd like to share with us? So not really. I just think that hats off to them for moving in the right direction to simplify things Yeah. so that, you know, it's a lot easier to capture this kind of stuff. And again, I think, you know, it's almost 2023. 20, I think every IR group should be, have a healthy and robust inpatient and outpatient clinical service. And I think if your group is trying to hinder you in doing that, I, I think you're providing the patient care is not as good as it could be. For sure. And like you For said sure. before, like any other, like a urologist or general surgeon, they, they all have these notes in the chart. And we may be the rock star that's doing the bulk of the work, but then we're not in the chart. I, I can think of multiple times yeah. where cardiothoracics was consulted for a lymphatics leak, and then I come in and fix it. And then cardiothoracics just follows and follows and follows, and they've not done anything but referred them to me, you know, but they're still billing mm. the clinical yeah. follow-up. Well, that, that brings me to, to a good point. Do you, in the way that my practice is set up, the PAs usually will round on people and they might sign off on, on day one post-procedure. Do you typically follow your patients the whole time while they're in the hospital or just until their problem is done? So it depends. If it's a nephrostomy too, if it's a drainage patient, I will follow them for a couple of days. Like let's say it's a nephrostomy tube, they have cancer. I'll follow them for a couple of days. And then if I'm not providing any expertise, then I'll sign off. If it's an abscess drain, I will follow them the entirety of their stay in the hospital because I'm pretty uh -huh. aggressive about either re-imaging, adding drains. And I think that helps. We have a lot of pancreatitis patients being the hepatobiliary surgery center of Oklahoma. We end oh, up seeing okay. that a lot. So that's an example of somebody that may be here 60 hospital days but I'm probably going to see them every day that they're here, at least Monday through Friday. On the All weekends, right. I typically won't follow them because nothing's going on. And then on like a biopsy, I'll see a biopsy the next morning, make sure they didn't bleed mm -hmm. overnight and then sign off. I see. Okay. So you do follow your biopsies next day too. Got it. Awesome. And then are there are there patients that you like chart check and write a note for, but maybe don't go see? Or are you pretty much seeing all these folks? I go see everybody because I found that whether you see three people or like 15, it's almost the same amount of time. Unless, Isn't that amazing? Unless you have a crazy patient, <laughs> but you just have to be really good about trying to stay focused. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and one thing I think, and, and I'm not as in tune to this, would be the telehealth stuff. Yeah. I still think there's yeah. a lot of indecision. I don't think we have a clear vision of what telehealth is going to look like in 2023. So mm -hmm. I think once that update occurs, I'll try to do a, a YouTube. And then I'll probably put out some YouTubes that reflect all these changes because the ones that are up there are pointless at this point. So I still, I still like them. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. They won't be super helpful in a few months here. And again, when it comes to the, <laughs> the new stuff, all you have to do is put in a history and physical that you think is mm -hmm. necessary, whatever that is. Got it. So for yeah. me, it's, I do the skin. I'll say drain side is clean, dry, and intact. And I'll say what's in the drain bag a lot of times. And that's it. And that's what, so I don't, oh, yeah. I don't I typically mean, bust out a stethoscope or any of that stuff on, you know, depending on what's required. For sure. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's stuff we're already doing, but we're just maybe not 
getting appropriately paid for it. Okay, well, I, I feel like we covered a lot. Um, it was we got into like some nitty gritty details that I wanted to clarify. So thanks for that. Uh, any other uh, words of advice to folks who uh, maybe either haven't started on their E and M journey or um, have uh, gotten maybe hindered on the way there? I don't know. I think just the main thing is you just have to do it. Just yeah. just wake up. It's like sex, right? right? Isn't that what yeah, you it's said? It's like sex. You just have to do it once, and then <laughs> all the anxiety's gone. So, you know, and it's like one of those deals, like if you're not doing it, you don't know what questions to ask. So you do it a couple of times yeah, and then you'll yeah. have really good questions. People can email me. It's uh, ryan.trojan at integrisok.com if you have questions. Okay. And I have a question for you. Where did you do your fellowship training? Uh, University of Virginia. So did you guys get trained in E&M coding? Uh, we sure did not. No, we did all we did all the clinical stuff that you're talking about. But no, you know I didn't. But my husband, just like your brother, who's a urologist, my husband's an ear, nose, and throat surgeon, and so a lot of the things that I've learned um, has been from him. And when he um, when he saw some of the ways that we were losing money on ENM coding for a lot of our clinic stuff, he was like, "I can't believe you guys are doing this. This is I I just I can't believe you can run a clinical practice like this." So. That was a real eye opener for me. Yeah, my brother as a urologist, he's a they're like savants when it comes to coding because they they live or die <laughs> based on their clinic coding skills. Same mm, thing with the ENT. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, I trained at I trained at Hopkins and we got zero training, you know, not to knock on Hopkins, but you know, they, they do have an outpatient clinic, but then we never got any training or skills to apply it to our, our jobs moving forward. So I wish we could come up with a standardized curriculum for fellows to find a way to get this information out there. So at least they had the the tools that when they hit the ground running, they could implement E&M bill, billing where it's not being done. Well, um, we could even, um, if you were interested in collaborating, we could even put together something for the SIR Fellows Practicum, okay. you know, the one that they have in the in the spring. That's kind of just like a basic intro thing, just like you said, to, to hit the ground running. Where is it? Gosh, uh, I went, but it was it was a few years ago and I don't remember. <laughs> But they just have like, they have, um, I think Prague Patel was running it that okay. year, but they just have like a bunch of lectures by uh, by different folks. Some of them are really academically oriented. Like I remember this one lecture about like doing crazy cases with Angiovac and I'm like, I'm never going to use Angiovac nope. in my life, you know? And then uh, a lot of this stuff is a little more private practice oriented too. Okay. So it might be a good, it might be a good forum for uh, an introduction. Okay, cool. Awesome. Okay. Well, Ryan, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-host Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.